Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Rachel Cohn. We have the, the, the fun good fortune this week of starting a new book like Rabbi Schatz um, beautifully started for us with her chanting in the secular new year. So I thought that was a a nice convergence of of just our our timelines this year. So I decided to focus on the the transition from the end of Bereshit into the beginning of Shemot to help us maybe, I mean, reflect unto itself on like what that transition looks like in the Torah and then see if that has anything to offer us in thinking about the the narrative that we uh, might tell ourselves or put out into the world about what it's like to start a new chapter of of our life in the new year in 2021. So if you um, if you have the source sheet, great. If not, um, some of the the sections are very easy to refer to in a Tanakh or Eitz Chaim. So um, we're going to start by reading just the first uh, about six psukim in English, which we we heard from Rabbi Schatz already, uh, but just kind of a, a review that the beginning of, of Exodus, I mean, the, the name of the book in Hebrew is Shemot, because it begins by listing literally the names of the people who were the sons of Jacob or Israel who came into Egypt. So versus, um, this is either source one on the sheet, or just if you have a Tanakh, Exodus Exodus 1, chapters, uh, verses 1 to 6, sorry. Uh, So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, uh, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Judah, uh, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, Asher. And then it gives, after listing the names, the total number of people who were in their, their households, basically. The total number that were of Jacob's issue came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation. Um, so if you started reading this book, having never read anything else in the Torah, that might be helpful background. But the reality is, if you are somebody who's been following along the entire time, it might strike you that this is actually not new information. So if we were to go back to Genesis, what's listed as source number two on the sheet, Genesis chapter 46, uh, starting at verse eight, we see um, something pretty similar with, with just kind of slightly more detail about who their sons were, that it basically says these are the names of all the people who were in Egypt that were descendants of, of Jacob or um, Israel. These are the names of the Israelites, Jacob and his descendants who came to Egypt. Jacob was firstborn, Reuven, and then it lists Reuven's sons, Shimon's sons, um, and then it, it goes on to list each of Jacob's sons and their um, and their sons. So you kind of get like a slightly more detailed uh, sense, like mini census of who all the people were, the Israelites that ended up in Egypt. And we know, I mean, we know Joseph was there because we've been reading the whole Joseph story and, and all that jazz. And then even um, this, the statement at the beginning of Exodus that, that Joseph had died, we, I mean, the, a good chunk of the last like couple chapters of Genesis is going through the whole thing about like what's happening as Joseph, as Joseph is dying and telling his brothers, like I'm about to die. 
please take, take my bones with you, this, that, and the other. And just kind of as a quick summary of all of that, what's listed as, as source number three on the sheet is Genesis 50, um, 26, where it just says, Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Like that's, that's the, um, like at the end of, of Bray sheet. So if you have, if you've been reading anything before where we are now, you would notice that the first several verses of Shemot is not really new information. So uh, before we look at any commentaries about this phenomenon, what what would be your thoughts about why, like, whoever you think the author or authors of the Torah are, what would be the reason for starting off this new book with information that is, is basically a, a recap? Larry? To slightly change your question or answer a different question. Great. I would add verses 1 through 7, if in fact I were taking the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of the Exodus, and the foundation story of the new people, but I wanted to connect it to a previous foundation story, which actually had its foundation in a land that these people are going to go to, I would need to write a connection. Mm. And that would be the connection I would write. I find it interesting, and I don't know exactly how far it goes. If you start in verse in verse eight, uh, besides the mention of the king who not Joseph, that's the end. There's no reference to Jacob to Israel. Um, I haven't gone far enough to see when was the first time that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned in Shemot. I'm sure that they are. Possibly at the burning bush. I mean, I know that they are at the burning bush. I haven't, um, I'd have to do a like quick sweep through it to see if it's anything in between them. But I know at the burning bush, when God is talking to, to Moshe, God says like, I'm the one who spoke to all these other people. So I don't know, Rabbi Schatz, if you have other, other info, you can weigh in here. But, but to my knowledge, that's the first like um, example that's jumping out in me. So yeah, what you're saying is really interesting that, that, if we were to start after the mention of there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, that that the memory of Pharaoh and all the people in Egypt, and as it's recorded in the story, it's like you're starting in a new era and you wouldn't even know what had come before. So there's there's some some need to connect it to to the past. So um, great, Joanna. Um, so talking about like, you know, a comparison to a foundation story, I think there's a comparison here to the very first foundation story to chapter one of Breshit. And especially when you get to that line about how they multiplied and they increased, that language is very reminiscent of, um, the increase that happens, you know, as creation is happening and how everything is going to multiply and increase. So if, this is going to be a very foundational story of the creation of a nation. So we're starting to parallel that. And, um, and also how incredibly important names are in the creation story, right? That as things are created and as Adam is created, you know, everything gets their name. So I see a strong parallel there. And the other thing also, I think that is really significant to note is 
how this chapter starts here in verse 1 with B'nai Yisrael, meaning literally the children of Israel. And by verse 13, we're starting to talk in a more expansive version of B'nai Yisrael. So already here, we're starting to see that transformation of a family becoming a nation. Great, beautiful. And what both of you have already pointed out is that part of the, the mission of Exodus is to tell a story of not just a clan, like we've been reading about in Bereshit, but what becomes a, an Am, a people. So there's there's various um, really nice connections that you've pointed out in how how it's set up to, to, to show that evolution of becoming a people. Beautiful. Any other, uh, Brant? So I think this is significant in the number 70 for some reason. Like they make a point of spe- pointing out the number 70. So these 70 people are clearly direct descendants from the patriarchs in a very direct way. And there's a reason why they're mentioned here. And it's not the whole big Israel. It's the small Israel. And these are special people. I don't know why they're, you know, they pick 70, but there's some reason they mentioned 70 here. And these 70 people are direct descendants from the patriarchs. And that's what's significant about this paragraph. Interesting. So, um, so are you saying that there's maybe a desire to point out a difference between who will become the, the, like the, the masses and these, these well, special, I people? think that as the Israelites get to be more numerous is where they start having problems with the Egyptian population. But at this point, this is a 70 very special people that are not ordinary people. And they're at a very high spiritual or whatever existence plane and these people are not the rest of us. When we get to the rest of us, that's when we start having this problem with, you know, uh, existing in a land that's not our own. But as long as it was just these 70 people, this is a fairly rarefied air. And that's why they mention it. Uh, nice. So I, that's a great segue into some of the commentaries that we'll look at, because I think there are pieces of what you just mentioned that will that will appear in in a couple of these commentaries. So... Is there a volunteer with the source sheet who would like to read source number four, what Rashi says about uh, Exodus 1-1? Do I see a Bacharach volunteer? Gary, you can go for it. Uh, source four, is that right? Yes. Okay, why, why repeat this information? Rashi on Exodus. Okay. These are the names of the children of Israel. Even though the Torah has already enumerated them by name while they were living, it returned and enumerates them in telling of their death in order to show how dear they were to God. Great. Thank you. So if you, uh, Gary or Marlise or anyone, if you were to, to just summarize in, you know, in your own thinking, like what Rashi is saying here, why it was important to, to say that their names again. Um, uh, just restating so by emphasis that they were that they were important to God. Yeah, Great. The relationship to God is not just names. There's it's just not Joe on the street. This is this is a God person that is uh, God thinks that this person is a special person. Very nice. And one way that we that we can tell God cares about someone is even after they're no longer living, they still get they still get mentioned. And um, I didn't add this part in the English just to save some space, but Raji goes on to quote a Midrash talking about how um, like the stars, each person is named in their, in their, 
they're being born and they're, and they're going out and they're dying and that, you know, it shows how much God loves them, that, that the text, that the text calls them by name in, in both of those moments. So, so great. So, so far we have Rashi's reasoning that we just, for emphasis, want to have it repeated that these people are very important to God. So we need to mention them again in the book of Exodus. Excellent. So we're going to go on to, to hear Chizkuni. It's a short point, but interesting, I think. Is there anyone who'd like to read source five, the Chizkuni? Larry, great. Go for it. Since I'm a big Chizkuni fan, he says the prefix letter Vav in the word Va'ela is intended to connect what, what is written here to what has been written previously at the end of gray sheet. Great. So just, you know, it's, it's sort of a technical point, but also a thematic one that, that, you know, Shemot is the first significant word in the book. That's why the name of the book is Shemot, but it's not actually the first thing that is said. It's Ve'ela and these. So right off the bat, he's noticing that it, it's like you pick up volume two in a, in a trilogy or something that it's clearly showing it comes after something else because there's this vav that automatically connects it to what came, what came previously. So excellent. Any other thoughts or questions so far before we go to the third commentary, Joanna? More so connected maybe to the previous than this one, but I just had the thought that um, the name Yad Vashem, which is a phrase from Isaiah where it talks about, you know, having a monument and a name and that that name will be everlasting as a way of remembering, you know, people who have passed away. And like that we don't just like the Hebrew quite literally is not just a memorial, but says how important it is to remember the name. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's something that's embedded in so many aspects of Jewish culture that, that we, we, you know, we give names to new babies for people who have passed away to say that like, as you know, this person will continue living through their, through their name. So it really, it's, it's significant to hear names after someone has, has died, which is what we're, what we're doing in the book in the beginning. And a couple of people already mentioned that there's going to be like a new birth of a nation. So perhaps these names can be some of the inspiration for, you know, like what, what people and qualities are getting infused in this, in this new creative process that's going to be happening, going from, you know, the, the, just a handful, a group of 70 of Israelites to, to Am Yisrael. Um, Great. So let's go on to to hearing what Rosh Bam has to say about this first verse in Shemot. Would anybody like to read uh, number six on the sheet, Rosh Bam? I saw a hand. Larry, go for it. Sure. The Eilat Shemot, seeing that the Torah wanted to let us know how the Israelites had increased and multiplied, it became necessary to repeat that when they had arrived in Egypt, they had numbered only 70 souls. Um, <clears throat> great. So this Rashbam is saying the information becomes newly significant when it's repeated in a new context. So while we may have already known that was the number, we are hearing it in relation to um, 
I think at least one person has already pointed out that Brant, that was you, right? Talking about how that they, they started to have problems when it became the more than 70. So, so by repeating that they started at 70, it can help illustrate both how much they, they grew and also just kind of the past to explain how they got on that trajectory of getting into this, this conflict and, and all that jazz. So what I thought was interesting about this Rosh bomb, and then I, I mean, I'm curious to hear your thoughts um, about any of them again, but it, it's, it just reminded me that hearing the same piece of information, in this case, it's, you know, a fact, it's the number of people in relation to something else, or if you know the story that becomes before or after, can have different significance. Like at the end of the book of Genesis, we might have thought, wow, there were 70 people who were all connected to, to Yisrael, who were, were, you know, were in Egypt and wow, they had like a pretty strong group going there. But then when we hear about how much they continued to multiply, we, you know, looking back, it's like, oh, there weren't actually that many people or maybe we did, we do still think it was a lot of people, but it's just interesting how the same, the same piece of information in a different context can take on different, um, different meanings. So um, for me, it was Rosh Bam in particular that, that got me thinking about what it might mean going into the, the secular new year, because at least in a lot of people I'm seeing on social media and, and things like that there, it seems like there's a strong urge for people to want the, the break in the year to be totally as if not like nothing came before. And it's totally new. Obviously, when the clock struck midnight in whatever time zone you live in on January 1st, 2021, of course, all of the woes and concerns and everything that came before in 2020 are are gone. And we can say 2021 is going to be a totally, totally new, fresh experience. No, like whatever my problems were, they're gone. Um, The good things can stay, but that's it. Um, And I think that that like that seeing some of these commentaries and like from the Rosh Bam mindset that you can repeat the same piece of information, but maybe it's going to mean something different. And I think that there's something to that to say, you can still start a new chapter, but you can, you can take some piece of what came before and connect it to a story that's going to be different. So, um, I guess I'm, I mean, I'm kind of curious to hear other other reflections on any of these pieces. Um, but yeah, so just curious to hear your thoughts in general about these commentaries and the like the the bridge between these two books. And like, are we starting a new story or is it a continuation of the old story? I'd like to comment on the secular new year, if you don't mind. Oh yeah, please. I, that's, that's where we're going next for the rest no, of the but time. What I'm saying is, is that you're, we're being too harsh on it. Yeah. You know, the reality is the world, people in the world do not stop and reflect often enough. And if the greater world stops on New Year's to reflect a little bit about where we've been and where we might head, then the New Year serves a valid purpose. In other words, you know, you could make the same argument about birthdays or about attending high school graduations, uh, uh, reunions or something like that. But every once in a while, you have to stop 
You have to think at what transpired over the last year or the 10 years when you saw these people last and where it means about going forward. In that sense, the secular New Year serves a very valid purpose for the greater society, even though it's not like a religious New Year like Rosh Hashanah. So, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, you know, I, 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 I've heard twice today the kind of belittling of the secular new year and i just don't see it that way so oh gotcha both you and rabbi shots and i keep wondering where's that coming from oh no um thank you for that reflection i think um that helps me see like how what um what what image i must have been presenting about it i think my i mean my view of it isn't to belittle it my um i think it is actually like i'm appreciative that as a jewish person i have a chance for the jewish new year and the secular new year to have those, those reflection points. I think the danger in it is when we fall into an illusion that it is, um, I mean, it's kind of, it's an arbitrary baking point that, which can be helpful for reflection, as you pointed out. I think the, where it can get um, used in a dangerous way is when people fall into a trap of thinking that's that's like I'm I'm ho- I'm holding on to the illusion of control because of that arbitrary break in how we measure time and and not taking the lessons that are really connecting, you know, like in the way that Shemot wasn't it wasn't a new totally new story. There had to be we've seen all these many reasons that there had to be some points reiterated from what came before and which doesn't mean it's tied to all of the 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 challenges or heartbreak or any of the the things that come up in the stories of of gray sheet but it means it has to remember that those happened so i think that like as you're saying grant it actually like it, it can be a super important time to reflect and we actually need to like hold on to a piece of what came before even if it's really hard to inform the story that we're trying to write in, in the new year. Does that, does that resonate with any of your, (laughs) any of your feelings? Great. I appreciate that comment. Um, Other thoughts, we can kind of jump into like, into the reflecting about the secular new year piece too. Larry. I'm not, I'm going to go back to the text. Beautiful. Um, And uh, for this one, I wish Rick were here, Rick Muller. So the first seven verses I'm suggesting were added on. Mm-hmm. And, I know, and I know that the trope on the first seven verses, four of the verses have no etnachta. And you've got that funny list of the names of the 11 sons. And the 11 sons are divided into four, 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 three, four. And there's no, the etnachta usually uh, divides the verse into two. But then you've also got that interesting and strange verse about the death of um, of Yosef um, I guess it's verse 7 um, if I'm looking in the right place sorry it's, it's verse 6 I think verse 6 right you're right thank you and that's also doesn't have an anachta and I don't have any basis for saying this, but all of that suggests, and I don't know that anywhere else in the Torah, it could be, um, that, that the Masorites put that many verses together without an achta. You see it all the time. It's not that, not that rare. But to have four of them out of the first seven suggests to me some sort of appendage here. 
that these mm-hmm. verses were just sort of scrunched on here as a um, as a joiner. Mm-hmm. Could I mean could totally could be. I would have to personally do more research about the the history of it with the mass reads, but that's super interesting. I hadn't actually noticed that about the etnachtas, and um, yeah, I would think that would suggest that there was some kind of unified different vision for what those those verses were doing i just add oh, even even when we read the ten commandments at least in yitro the 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 trope that we use when we're reading it during the uh, normally in the torah uh doesn't have just uh, divided verses it's only when we read it with the um with a special trope that we actually divide those short commandments into separate verses. So that would be another place where you would have a whole series of verses without an ektah because you've got those two word verses. Mm-hmm. And all that other, right. all that. Right. Um, interesting. Well, more, more to learn about. Uh, wait, I just saw a hand, Rebecca. And then I know Rabbi Schatz had a comment too, but Rebecca. Oh, that's okay. On the, um, I was just thinking in terms of the names and naming Jacob's 12 sons, when we, when we look back at what we read this morning at the beginning of chapter 49, where, uh, where Jacob goes through each of the sons and talks about them individually, you know, and that's, that's as they were individuals. But then, you know, at the end of Brashid, they all come together and bury their father and, Yosef is the only one really who's mentioned. So they're not mentioned again as they came together. So I'm thinking perhaps in the um, listing of the sons together now at the beginning of Shemot, it's, uh, um, it's again showing that they came together and they're not individual with their individual attributes like they were before. They buried their father and uh, the verse talks about the sons who came with Jacob. And then it just lists their names. So now they're all sort of united as a unit together. Nice. Does that um, does that change your understanding of like what what this introduction to Shemot is doing? If if that unity is important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it starts out with them united as this family unit. Um, yeah. Nice. So that can like inform how we're how we might think about the book. From there, um, obviously, some conflict arises, not so much between them at that point, um, event, you know, eventually, but um, uh, very interesting. Um, great point. Thank you. Any other other thoughts? I mean, my, my general reflection question, if there's no other. Um, oh, Rabbi Schatz, let's go to you. And then, I, and then I'll have. A oh, yeah. it's OK. It's very short. I was just going to say that I'm, I'm always struck every year that that the way in which we enter Shmote is a very different view into this family than we've had ever before. So similar to what Rebecca actually just said, that there is a sense of unity here that we never see except for at the kind of final moments of certain pieces of, of the past two Parshiot. And yet the way in which the Pharaoh is understanding these people as that they were so together that they've become now populated far beyond what any Egyptian could ever imagine. And it just makes me think about families in general. Oh, hello, Rosie. It makes me think about families in general that we don't necessarily know what's going on on the inside, but but that I'm a very from dog in the house. Um, but that we are 
we have to be on the inside to really know what the relationships are like rather than this eagle eye view which is what pharaoh this new pharaoh had of this this family of not necessarily understanding what the real relationship and the real um strife was about interesting interesting right they got they got read differently or misunderstood the other thing that your comment just made me think of is that when we choose to to hold on to a piece of the story but also let go of a piece of the story that there's there's the mentioning at the beginning of shemot of those brothers without the you know the strife that that carried us through a good chunk of brashi and that there's something i think hopeful about the fact that you can name a piece of the story that you're holding onto from the past, but also allow it to have some new, new life and new unity. And like to say, this is the narrative about it that I'm put, I'm putting forth right now about this, about this thing that also had complicated, you know, complicated pieces too. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which kind of leads me to my, my final question. If a couple of people want to weigh in is just to say, as we're going into the new secular year, is there something that, that you're a piece that you're holding on to that you want to, to maybe in part, like include, but name differently, include, but present differently, that there's something from the story in the past year that is important to you to hold on to in this, in this new chapter, but also maybe it's going to take on a slightly new life in the new year. So reflections, is there something that you want to bring into the new year um, or want to let go of, or like something, something in between. Uh, Marlies. Okay. Um, It's not necessarily making different, but I guess I I was commenting back on what you were saying about people kind of wanting to just have this year, 2020 be gone. And for me, um, you know, being in a place of mourning, um, you know, I look back on the year as like the last year that I had some time with my mother and be it, be it secular or Jewish year. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to just wish that away and say, be gone with it. It's something I think, you know, as, as in the verses connecting, um, Brashid and Shemot and as in just our tradition, which is, you know, memory is such a big part of, part of that, you know, that I take comfort in that and, and do want to hold on to that and not, I mean, obviously taking it into my life now, which is very different than it was before, but it's something I want to continue and honor. Absolutely. And, you know, and may her memory and, and name be a blessing as we're, as we're seeing in the way that that, that can bring us forward to in this chat. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for sharing. Um, any, anyone else? We maybe have time for one more, one more reflection. All right. Well, whatever is in your mind and heart that you are holding on to a piece of, but also breathing some new life into it for this new year. I hope all of your your wishes and hopes will will come to fruition in in their own way, and that we'll also be able to connect our stories to to what has come before and and not shy away from those those previous chapters. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site 
or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.